thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Lead SA. .co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Chris, good morning. Welcome. Hi, Reedy. I've been looking at my cup of coffee suspiciously since we last spoke, but I've decided <laughs> I'll start next week. If I'm going to do any adjustments, it will be next week or tomorrow. I'm on tea today. I've got uh, Are you awake? Tea. Oh, getting there, getting there. (laughs) Chris, you're familiar with the work of uh, South African paleontologist Philip Tobias. Yeah, what a shame Mm. that uh, the great man has has now died. One of life's incredible intellects and nominated for a Nobel Prize three times Mm. for his work. Um, Yeah, this this gentleman, for I can't believe anyone doesn't know who he is, but this gentleman who was based at Vit Forces Rand University is really one of the godfathers of our understanding of human paleoanthropology. He was the successor to um, Raymond Dart, who is arguably one of the most famous um, paleoanthropologists of all time, and he he passed away earlier this week. Mm -hmm. But he did do pretty well. he was in his mid-80s yes. and, and had something like five degrees, including a degree in medicine oh. and, and paleoanthropology and everything else. So he was genuinely a pathological learner, one of these academics who um, absolutely loves learning for the sake of learning. Oh, that's just incredible. All right, we're taking your calls then on 021-446-0567, Now, Chris, my, my, my maths is dodgy, so uh, I'm going to relate <laughs> this to the best of my ability. Here's an SMS. It says, why can't most calculators perform minus x and minus y most give the result as x plus y that's an sms from dave uh does he mean in standard form i'm not really clear i understand the question really to be honest i mean most of them have an x to the y function which is if you want to raise x to the power of y you press this button and you type in the number and then you you press the x y button and then you type in what you want the y value to be and it then raises the value of x to the power of y but i'm not clear what he means by x minus y plus y and so on and unfortunately i do not know what he's asking either so i can't decode it dave if you can give us more details you can send us an an email ready at 702.co.za Ridi at capetalk.co.za Let's go straight to Ronnie in Midrand Hi Hi Chris, I'd like to know how self-focusing binoculars work Hi Ronnie Um I'd, I've never owned a pair, unfortunately. I aspire to have a good pair of binoculars one day. If anyone would like to send me a set, that would be very nice. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a range of ways that these autofocus systems work. Some of them um, work in the same way that your camera does. Others uh, use the fact that once you get to beyond a certain distance away, um, you just put it to the absolute maximum. And you, you uh, can rely on the fact that the optics mean that it's, it's going to be in focus across a very broad depth of focus, if you see what I mean. So I've never, I don't actually 
actually know the technology in terms of um, the the thing you're referring to to say exactly how your system works. So, what set of binoculars do you have, Ronnie? Chris, it doesn't matter who um, takes the glasses up. Um, you know, everybody's eyes are different, but they can focus. And there's no battery in them or anything. Um, they focus to everybody's eyes. I see. Over any range of distances. Mm. Hey, Ronnie, for any range of distances you're asking? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I need to look into this, Ronnie, because I don't want to give you misleading information. So I'm sorry I can't do anything apart from just to say that uh, once you open the uh, focus to the infinite distance, then it's going to be in focus over a very broad depth of focus, and so it, there won't be a problem. But uh, let me let me check into this one and see if there's anything special that I need to be saying on this. Mo in Vereniging. Hey, good morning, Chris. Mm. How are you? We're fine. Thanks. Your question, please. Uh, yes. I'd like to know, is it possible to do complete muscle transplants? Say, for instance, a person has cancer in the muscle and bone, and they remove the tumor and part of the muscle in it is removed. Is it possible to do a complete muscle transplant with today's medical technology? Okay. Hello, Mo. Well, the answer is that people are doing that, and I don't know if you've seen in the news in the last few years people talking about doing face transplants. Uh, there was even a hand transplant, in fact, a bilateral hand transplant on, on one individual. Um, the face transplants are important because in individuals who've had devastating injuries or some kind of developmental problem, most of the the structure of the face well it comes from really two things one is the skull structure underneath the bony structure but then superimposed on that are the muscles and if you look at people who do facial reconstructions in clay for example they can take a skull and because they know their anatomy they can rebuild where the muscles would be on the skull using the, the bony prominences and things to tell them where the muscles would attach and then they can put a layer of of clay on as a, a skin and the structure of both the bone and therefore those overlying muscles tells you what the shape of the face would be so you can rebuild what someone would have looked like historically and this is how they do it for cavemen and things so when people do face transplants they're not just putting skin on they're actually transplanting the face including a lot of the musculature so it is possible the problem with muscles is that they do have uh, the ability to present their um biochemical markers let's say to the immune system so you have to immunosuppress people when you do these sorts of things and if you transplant hands or arms which is also being done again you're putting in muscle tissue so muscles can definitely be transplanted and so can bone because when we do restoration surgery or we repair trauma you can sometimes take bone grafts from other people or even from yourself even better you can take bits of bone from other places mm. but you can take bone and you can grind it up and put it into the area you want to restore and then it gets incorporated into the healing process so it is possible and uh, it, it just depends on what the clinical need is but there's certainly no reason if you can do it for a heart and a lung why you couldn't do it for other tissues like muscles let's go to david in midrand hi uh, my question is, uh, I've heard that the bone structure within a snake is very similar to that of a, of a human being. Mm. And is it possible that uh, the snake could have uh, maybe evolved where it is now from maybe an upright creature or something like that? Hello, David. Um, if you look in some snakes, you'll see that they, they do indeed have um, a pair of legs that, that don't really do very much. So pythons and things, if you look at uh, the, the place on an equivalently long uh, animal where its legs 
should be, you do find some little sort of vestigial legs and there's a little pelvis inside. And all that snakes have done is to abandon the use of legs and just use their bodies as their means of propulsion. And because um, most things that when they develop, they develop segmentally, what snakes have done is to add a few extra segments, in fact quite a few extra segments, along their length to just make themselves become longer. So they have a, a sort of repeating segment system and they just increase the number of segments. And they've, they've still got the genes though that make some of these vestigial structures like their uh, legs and pelvis, and so they still get these little extra accessory bones inside, even though they don't use them. And you can use this as evidence that snakes evolved from individuals that, or animals that would have been tetrapods. So when animals came out of the sea and stopped swimming around in sea and crawled up the riverbank millions of years ago, and then evolved uh, from fins going into legs so they could move around, snakes then lost the use of those legs again and just started crawling around on their bellies. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 17 minutes to 10 o'clock. We're taking your calls and emails 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, I've got an email here, a question here from Aki Anastasiu, a traffic reporter. <laughs> yeah, you know Aki. Says, well, I just have memories of Aki dis- demonstrating his own naked scientist <laughs> look in the studio last year. <laughs> oh no, um, don't spoil my morning. Do you remember that? <laughs> Just spoiled my day. <laughs> Aki wants to know, uh, while traveling abroad, uh, he says, he often sees people at airports wearing masks. In particular, uh, they seem to be Asian travelers. Uh, he wants to know, does wearing a mask actually work in preventing uh, you from uh, protecting you from any diseases and infections? Uh, in a word, no, because if they did work, then why would everyone be wearing them, implying that they're already catching things? Um, my first experience of this, I went to Japan in 2001 for Christmas, and I, I'd never uh, seen this before, and there I was on public transport thinking I was surrounded by people on their way to a medical convention or something, because they all look like surgeons. Um, the answer is no. People have done a lot of work on this now, and unless you buy these very high-spec um, 3M masks, which are F- so-called FP3 uh, fit-tested masks that form very good seals around your nose and mouth, and also as long as you, if you, if you protect your eyes, that will also help. But most of these masks um, don't actually do anything really. As soon as they get damp because of your breath going uh. back and forwards through them, then it creates this perfect little conduit for the virus particles to come through them, and also they get blown out the side as well. So it doesn't really help very much. Um, what it shows is that you do have a social conscience, and also if you see someone wearing one, you know to avoid them because they might mm. affect you with something. A quick update on these binoculars. While the ads are on just now, I was having a little poke around. Um, it, 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 as I thought, um, these are factory set, so I wasn't sure whether Ronnie had some something else that he was referring to, which means means these binoculars autofocus. But the consensus appears to be, and other people have sent me some details in the meantime. Um, these are preset optics in the factory, um, which are, as I suggested, optimised for distance. So that means that it, it then relies on your eye's own natural focusing ability to just keep things sharp, because your eyes have their own lens system in them to focus things. That's how your eyes work, um, and so the binoculars are set up for distance depth you know big depth of field so they work very well over long distance but if you're trying to see things close up there's going to be a compromise so they're not going to be as clear and and crystal uh, when you're looking at things close to you as when you're looking into the mid and greater deep distance thank you very much let's go to margo margo you're calling us from good morning yes hi how are you fine thank you yes good i'd like to know um 
why when two people are shrieking at a very, very high pitch, do you do you also hear like a buzzing noise? You also hear it if if two people, um, um, if you whistle really, <laughs> really loudly, two people, you hear um, a buzzing noise as well. Why is that? <laughs> I don't. Do you, Reedy? No. Do you hear? No, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Margot. Maybe it's just you. Uh, no, I don't mean to make you feel bad. Um, what I could suggest is that perhaps uh, the frequencies of the sounds that you're listening to uh, could be uh, making your head vibrate in a certain way. Also, it could be that when the two sound waves coming out of the people, if they're um, if they're using slightly different frequencies, then every X number of beats of the sound then the the two waves will line up and make a louder sound and then they'll also cancel out in certain places and so you'll get peaks and troughs which are not at the same frequency as the high pitch whistle they'll be at a different frequency but they will therefore produce their own apparent sound because you'll get loud bits and quiet bits and it might be that that buzzing you're hearing is the interaction of the two sounds thank you very much uh, here's an sms Really, please ask the naked scientist, why does it take Spaceship 3 days to the... Okay, no, I'll have to work that out during the ad break. Sorry about that, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I still haven't figured out this SMS language. I like words written out in their complete form, then I can read them. But Harry wants to know, at what point did human evolution stop or did it? If it didn't, can we predict how future humans would look like? Well, the answer with any evolution question, Harry, is that it's all down to selective pressure from the environment. In other words, things change because every time you pass your genes on from a parent to a child, there is a slow rate or a low rate of mutation. Genes acquire changes just by chance. In fact, when humans have a baby, the baby inherits between 30 and 50 new genetic changes that its parents don't have. Now, sometimes those genetic changes will be bad. Other times, those genetic changes may confer some kind of advantage. But they won't confer an advantage if there's nothing in the environment that makes that gene helpful for that person. But if that person, for instance, inherits a gene or has a change in the gene that makes their red blood cells a very bad place for malaria to live in, If you live in a part of the world where there's a lot of malaria and suddenly you've got this genetic change, then you will have a strong advantage over people who don't carry that particular form of the gene, so you're more likely to be successful and to breed successfully and to pass that gene into your children, so there'll be more copies of the gene circulating. In other words, you'll slowly enrich for a trait because of the selective pressure from the environment imposed by, in the example I'm using, malaria. Mm. So, as humankind has gone through its life and its evolution, there have been various selective pressures placed upon us by the world we've grown up in. That would have started off being, in our early history, the ability to find food and find water, go for long periods of time without good quality food, the ability to tolerate very harsh environments, and so on. Now we live in much more comfortable environments where food's on tap, and instead of people having to worry about uh, how to not starve to death, now we have to worry about not putting on too much weight. Mm. And so we now live in a world where actually gaining excess food on board, too many calories, is a bad thing. So we're still evolving, we're definitely still evolving, but it's just that the selective pressures have changed slightly, and we will see people evolve in a new direction as time goes forward. Where where that will carry us is like trying to see into the future, though. We don't know what challenges we're going to face in the future, um, but it's inevitable and uh, absolutely true that we're still evolving and will continue to do so as long as we exist. Thank you very much, Harry. Let's go to Rachel in Table View. Hi. Hi. Hi, guys. Mm. I would like to know why 
there is a water shortage. And mind you, it doesn't feel like there is one today in Cape Town. Um, I always thought water was one of those things like energy that um, it couldn't be used or destroyed. You know, so like the sea, uh, the, the water evaporates the sea, it goes up for clouds and then it falls down as rain and then it gets consumed and then passed back into the mm-hmm. system. So Why is how, how does water actually get used? <laughs> Hello, Rachel. It's incredible to think, I mean, it's not just Cape Town, in Cambridge in the UK, where I currently am, uh, there is a water shortage and the reservoirs are really low. And you think this is the, well, one of the most abundant molecules on Earth. There's more than, oh, there's about two billion cubic kilometres of water on Earth. Huge amount. And, and so it's not an availability problem, it's a distribution problem. A bit like food, really. People say there's so much food being produced around the world every year, why are there people starving? It's not that there's a shortage of food, it's a shortage of people being in the right place where the food is and it's the same with water water um will will obviously be delivered by rain clouds and rain clouds come from the ocean so the sun warms the sea water evaporates it forms water vapor in the air this condenses to form clouds and in certain places and certain geographies when clouds are forced to rise then they will drop their water the water then follows rivers and things out to sea unless we stop it and trap it in reservoirs unfortunately where we've decided to build and put a lot of our housing and a lot of our farming and so on isn't necessarily always the best place for water availability and as we increase population and we increase demand for water then we place stress on the local system and the supplies people have often resorted to getting water out of the ground to make up the shortfall because the ground's like a giant sponge and as the rain goes in it filters down into the ground and fills up these aquifers and holes in rocks and things the problem is that in many places in the world where these aquifers are being exploited this water is fossilized water effectively it's water that's been down there for up to millions of years and if you use it you are depleting it and certainly in some places like western australia in, in perth when i was there recently they were showing me evidence that the the so- the water levels in the so- um, excuse me in the soil have dropped by maybe 15 to 20 meters where you used to easily get water out of a very high purity now now they're they're beginning to see saline because as you remove the water seawater is being pulled in to replace the void that's being left behind so um the bottom line is that it's all down to distribution and the the problem we're likely to face in the future in the world of tomorrow is going to be a water distribution problem we're probably going to have wars not over oil but over food land and water i would think here's an sms why is air invisible why okay why does it blow that's from sp (laughs) renfantine Well, air isn't really invisible. We can see the effects of air all the time. And when you look up into the night sky and you see the stars twinkling, the reason stars twinkle is because the light from those stars is coming through air of different densities because some bits of air are going to be warmer and some bits of air are going to be colder this will affect the density of the air and light changes its speed as it goes through things of different densities and so the light which is coming from distant stars is continuously being speeded up and slowed down as it passes through our atmosphere and this makes the star appear to wobble in in the sky in terms of its position because the light coming from it as it speeds up and slows down bends so i suppose you could say that the air isn't truly invisible because you can actually see the effect it's having on uh, visible objects in your view but the reason it's um it it, it is apparently um 
invisible in terms of things come light coming straight through it is is just because it doesn't interact with visible light in a way that that stops the light going through i suppose a good analogy is if you sit inside a building you can't see through the wall mm -hmm. because the wall looks like a solid object but if you turn on your cell phone and make a phone call the radio waves or the microwaves that the cell phone is using go straight through the wall of the studio or the building or wherever you are as though there is no wall there so in other words at different frequencies things that are opaque to us in the visible spectrum are completely transparent at different radio frequencies mm. and light's just a kind of radio wave lovely question sp let's go to emil in edenville hi hi good day to you mm. um could you tell me when you clear your throat what mm. what comes up where does it come from where does it go to when you swallow why does it happen is there anything that one can do to stop it from happening Right. Okay. Well, when you're clearing your throat, what's usually happened is that something has irritated your internal laryngeal nerve. So you have a nerve supply which comes up and up to about the level of your voice box and down into your throat, and it's there to protect. There's a reflex to protect obstruction to your airway to make sure it's always open so you can breathe. And when you have either a cough or some kind of upper respiratory infection with a virus or a bacterial infection or in some cases a parasite because some worms that we get infected with including schistosomiasis bilharzia and also um, hookworms and things they actually have part of their life cycle where they go in through your blood uh, through your skin in the blood to the lungs they mature in the lung irritate the lungs and make you cough up this lava and then you swallow it and then it goes down the gut where it wants to go so when you have irritation to this nervous supply in your throat by whatever cause it makes the cough reflex happen the idea being that you clear any obstruction this is usually just mucus and other gunge from your chest mm. where you have mucus there to mop up any particles that come in when you breathe in dust and pollen microorganisms and so on it gets coughed up to the back of your throat and at the back of your throat the windpipe the bit at the front where your trachea is which leads down into your voice box that actually opens into the same pipe that then goes down to become your esophagus down into your stomach so anything that you dislodge from your chest and your voice box and trachea you cough up and then it hits your or the back of your throat and then slips down into your stomach and some people argue that this is um, actually a very good thing because it carries inhaled allergens which things you've breathed in which you could be allergic to down into your stomach and then into your intestines where the immune system is trained to ignore good things and to react against bad things but basically it all ends up getting swallowed and most of its mucusy stuff and secretions made by glands which line your airways chris will chat again next week all right reedy take bye care bye. Now. bye everyone don't forget our conversation with the naked scientist is always available as a podcast you just go onto our website you click on my page uh, best of and you'll see a list of our podcasts give thomas about uh, how much time do you need today you're gonna uh, go till slow till half past one. Half, half past one. Why does it keep increasing? You're getting slower and slower. Uh, not faster and faster. It's not standard procedure. Ten past twelve. We want the podcast on the I website. Let's make it uh, half past one. <laughs> half past one. We'll give him some time so you can go onto our website. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.